Well, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. Um, I want to welcome all of our young ones. We're so glad you guys are here. I'm going to quiz you guys, especially in the front row, on everything we talked about. So pay very careful attention. Uh, at the end of this service, we're going to celebrate communion together. So moms and dads, I want you to be able to have some time to prepare your heart and mind. Uh, communion, we want to invite your children to partake with us only on one condition, that they have personally trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And if they've done that, uh, we want to invite you when the time of communion comes to uh, partake with them uh, because anybody who can think can come to Christ. Anybody who can self-reflect on their own sin and what we saw this morning at our Rooster Crows breakfast is many, many kids writing their own sin on a piece of paper and nailing them to the cross. And it is very apparent that four and five-year-olds understand that they are sinners before a holy God. And so your kids might be a little younger, they might be older, but if they've trusted in Christ, we want to invite them to celebrate communion with us at the end of this message. That'll be about two and a half hours from now, so you'll be just fine. The kids are going to be great. Again, it's the oldest, oldest joke in the pastor book. But, so as we begin our reflection on the crucifixion of Jesus, um, I want to ask each of you to take some inventory of your own soul and your own mind. Um, I have a simple question that I want to ask all of you to answer. Now, I always have to say this, there's something called a rhetorical question, because often when I ask questions, people say the answer out loud, and this is not one of those. So here's the question, and then I'm going to put some answers on the screen as well. Which of these best describes what you personally believe about Jesus? Now, the answers are going to range from non-existent to God incarnate and everything in between. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through these one by one. And what I really want you to identify is the answer closest to the right that you can confidently affirm. So let's start with all the way to the left with the, with the idea that Jesus was non-existent. And very few people believe this, but there are some who believe Jesus never existed. He's just mythology. And, and maybe you're here. Maybe that is the furthest answer to the right that you're able to affirm. Next is that Jesus was a con man. Uh, Jesus was a shyster exploiting people there just to make a name for himself, make a quick buck. Uh, maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're like, I know the guy existed, but I, I kind of think he was up to no good. We go further right, we get to the concept that Jesus was self-deluded. Maybe um, he actually believed he was divine or from God, but really he was just kind of crazy, and he was just maybe a lunatic, and you're like, the guy was off his rocker, so uh, I'm not really into the Jesus thing. I think he was, I just think he was delusional. Next, we have this, that he was, he's good, but generally misunderstood. And this is the idea that, like, if you met Jesus, you're pretty confident that he was a pretty decent guy, he was a good guy, but people started to assign things to him that Jesus never would have assigned himself. So people started saying he's a prophet, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's God, and maybe you're in a position where you're saying, listen, I really believe he's a good teacher, but I, I think a whole bunch of people put some stuff on Jesus that I think if Jesus was, were here, he wouldn't put on himself. As we keep going to the right, we get to this concept that Jesus was a messenger from God. 
That as you read the New Testament, as you look at the history and all of the evidence, maybe, maybe you're not convinced that he's God, but you're like, I'm pretty sure that the things he taught were divine. Uh, I'm pretty sure that as I think about Jesus, that he's from God. God looked on him with favor. He was maybe a prophet of God. And it's interesting because as we talk to a lot of Americans um, who grew up in the church, this is kind of where they stop. This is about as far right as many of them are willing to go. But there's, there's one last one, and this is that Jesus is God incarnate, and incarnate simply means in the flesh, that he's fully God and he's fully man. So I just want to take a moment, I want you to take inventory. What is the furthest word or phrase to the right that you personally are able to affirm? Again, rhetorical, don't say it out loud. Sound good? All right, so almost everybody in the first century, as they were encountering Jesus, listening to him, they're all trying to figure out the same question. Who is this guy? Like, we know he's the son of Mary and Joseph. We know he's from Nazareth. But there's something really strange about him, and we're trying to get our head around who this is. Even the disciples uh, are trying to figure out what is the actual nature of Jesus of Nazareth. Is he from God? Is he a prophet? Is he the Christ? Is he God in the, in the flesh? Who is he? So um, I want to ask you, would you open up your Bibles to the book of John? We're going to be in chapter 5. We're going to be in one verse, chapter 18. And this is going to be actually pretty similar, except shortened, of what we do on a normal Sunday morning morning. We're teaching through the book of John, and last Sunday, Craig Jarvis uh, left off right here at verse 18, and we're going to pick this verse up because I think it so perfectly captures what we want to talk about on Good Friday. As you turn there, the people, um, they were listening and they were watching Jesus, and, and everywhere he went, debate just stirred up. And you can understand why, because uh, if somebody starts raising people from the dead, making water out of wine, doing unbelievable miracles, growing back limbs, healing diseases that have been stuck on people for decade after decade after decade, um, probably there's going to be a little de debate and controversy that's going to stir up around this guy. But you could not watch him without at least affirming that he's doing the kinds of things that only God is able to do. Minimally, you're going to affirm this. When you watch somebody heal diseases that have been plaguing people for decades or raising people who are legitimately completely dead for a couple days, you're probably going to say this. Minimally speaking, the power of God is on this guy. But I actually think if you were there and if the Bible is true and you were watching him, you would actually say something like the power of God isn't just on him, it flows through him. It's almost as if he is actually God himself. And if this is true, this has absolutely enormous implications, by the way, for, for all of us. And now you get to the first century and there's all these kinds of, there's all these people, they're watching him, they're walking with him, they're following him, they're trying to get their own miracles. And, and really you could break this down into two kinds of people. First of all, there are the people who actually wanted truth. You know those people? Some of you are those kind of people. Some of you are actually not those kind of people. And you know who you are actually deep down inside, if you're being honest. And if you're one of those persons, I have a hunch that if I took you back 2,000 years and you had the opportunity for a couple of years or even months just to follow Jesus around, ask him questions, hear him teach, watch him do miracle after miracle after miracle that would blow your mind, I have a hunch that if you were really wanting truth, you would walk away from Jesus saying, truly, this guy has to be God in the flesh because he's doing the kinds of things and saying the kind of things that only God could do. There's a power resident in him that is very different than anybody else. And then as you would hear Jesus talk, here's what you're not going to get away from. Jesus very clearly thinks he's God. 
So this isn't one of those things where Jesus is like, who do you think that I am? Oh, I'm not gonna tell you. Like, if you start following him and listening to him, he's gonna make it pretty explicit that he believes that he is God incarnate. There's a second group of people. The first group are those who actually want truth. The second group of people, they're a little bit different because you may want truth, but you want something more than truth. You want to protect yourself. Here's the deal. I have a hunch that if I picked you up and I brought you 2,000 years in the past and you got to walk with Jesus, hear his teaching, see the supernatural power of God through him, I have a hunch you would walk away still not believing in him because, because if he is really God, then you are gonna be forced to love him more than the things of this world. And some of you are like, I'm not giving them up for him. And the, the, the first century, there's a group of people, uh, John calls them the Jews, they're the, the religious leaders of the day. They could see all the things that Jesus was doing. In fact, he even raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. And you know what John says? They wanted to go kill Lazarus as well because Jesus was such a threat to their power and they loved their power more than they loved truth. Look at John 5, 18. Here's what it says. This was why the Jews, these are the spiritual leaders of Israel, were seeking all the more to kill him. Here's why. Number one, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, this is where you go, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, listen, if you're familiar with the scriptures, I have a hunch you have read this multiple times and you just pass over what I think is one of the most unbelievably audacious statements in scripture. Look at this. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Let me ask you a question. Again, rhetorical. Have you ever sought out to kill another human being? Now, I'm not saying, have you ever wanted to kill another human being? I am saying, have you ever got a group of people together and planned secretly to end the life of another human being who was an inconvenience to you? Anybody? Let me, let me just put this in context. I want you to imagine all the pastoral staff of the Village Church of Bartlett are all conspiring together to end a pastor of a church down the road. Pastor Alex. Because, <laughs> if you don't know, Pastor Alex used to be a pastor here. Now he's a senior pastor at Alliance Bible Church. Love Pastor Alex. There's not a coup to kill Pastor Alex. But imagine there was. Why? Because he knew what we were really up to. And I want you to imagine, we get caught. Do you imagine that all over the country, maybe even the world, it would be on the front headlines of newspaper, pastoral staff organizes the execution of another pastor before he outed them. Could you imagine, could you imagine this? So I want you to just read this again because John is trying to tell you something about these spiritual leaders The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Two chapters later, John chapter seven, verse one, Jesus is traveling all throughout Israel. He has to avoid a certain area in Judea. And here's what it says, because the Jews were seeking to kill him there. So careful readers of scripture, they should be asking, how do we ever get to this point? How did we get to Good Friday? Why were these men so, these evil men, so intent on ending the life of Jesus? And John chapter 5, 18 gives us really three reasons. Number one, Jesus was murdered because he, made, he broke the laws that the Pharisees made up. You're not gonna believe this. This is probably gonna be the most unforgettable part of my entire sermon, not the part about Alex, but it's gonna be this right here. Jesus had the audacity, this guy's is crazy, to heal people on a Saturday. 
He had the audacity to actually give people their life back that had been taking them from decades from sin and illness and other things on a Saturday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday, totally acceptable. Can you believe Jesus would do this on a Saturday? Now, does the Bible say that you can't heal somebody on a Saturday? No, the Pharisees made this up. They made this up because they like extra rules and they wanted to control the people. If you were told and you had, I don't know, all the power of God resident within yourself and you could heal anybody you want at any time, you can heal any day you want, but not on Saturday. What would you do? I'd heal on Saturday. I actually might heal exclusively on Saturday just to poke at these corrupt people. Jesus was murdered number two because he exposed corrupt spiritual leadership and he did it publicly. There are all these really funny scenarios where Jesus and the Jews, the spiritual leaders, they're sparring and they're talking. We're gonna deal with one on Easter Sunday and, and there's people listening and Jesus will be like, hey, um, they're trying to kill me. Um, there's a plot. Um, they're actually really evil. Um, here's how they're handling money. Here's all their secrets. Like he actually outs them in front of all these other people. And the, these people, these leaders, they're pretty upset because they're like, listen, we've got deep, dark secrets. We're trying to control these people through law and power. And this Jesus comes along and all of a sudden he starts telling all of the people our plan. So now if we kill them, then they're going to know it's us. And they try to figure out another plan to kill Jesus so that nobody thinks it was actually them. I, I think there's actually just one bigger reason that really led them to kill Jesus, and this reason made them absolutely crazy. Uh, I think it's because Jesus was murdered because he claimed to be God. Look at the end of verse 18. He says, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. If you're a Jew in the first century, here's what you expect. Messiahs, false messiahs, they're going to pop up. They were everywhere. People claimed to be the Messiah, et cetera, and then eventually they were killed or they gave up or they ran away or they got scared or something happened. Messiahs were common. They were a dime a dozen. But this idea that the Messiah was actually going to be Yahweh never occurred to them. This, this idea, for us, it's normal. Christians for 2,000 years, Orthodox Christianity has believed Jesus is God in the flesh, right? That's easy. We get that. If you've been a Christian for a long time, even a short while, you're like, yeah, the answer that I'm giving is all the way to the right. Jesus is God incarnate. We know that. They had zero theological biblical categories that when the Messiah came, it would be Yahweh in the flesh. Should they have? I think so. Let me just read you one prophecy about the Messiah that I don't know about you, but if I read it, I would think to myself, maybe the Messiah is God. You know this, it's a Christmas prophecy, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, it's all about the Messiah. A son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and they're pumped, all right? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, okay? Mighty God, anybody? Anybody? Like, isn't there a little part of you that feels like they should have put this together a little sooner that when the Messiah comes, like, Maybe, maybe he's going to be God. But on that side of the cross and the resurrection, they had zero idea. So when a man comes and claims that he is God in the flesh, they lose their ever-loving mind. Let me, let me try to give you an analogy, but I'm not going to because it'll offend everybody. So I want you personally to imagine, what is the one thing I could say right now that would make you leave this room with your family? I'm not going to say it. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. You have it? Some of you have like, I've got 30, right? 
maybe a hundred. That's what this is like for, for these people. For a person to claim that they are Yahweh in the flesh, to touch me is to touch God. To see me is to see God. I and the Father are one. That's what Jesus says. That is so inflammatory that it will make them hate him from the bottom of their soul because they have no theological category for it. It is the worst, most terrible thing a person who says they are a Jew could possibly say. And it drives them crazy. But they were stuck. Because this Jesus kept doing things that only God could do. What do you do when somebody tells you they're God it makes you angry, and then they do only things that God can do. You have two options. If you want truth, you're going to follow Jesus, and you're going to watch him, and you're going to see, does he really do the things that only God can do? But if you want to protect yourself, you're going to get mad at him. You're going to get defensive. You're going to get angry. You're going to push him away. And if you were a Jewish leader in the first century, you're going to begin to collaborate and conspire with other people to end his life because he has pushed you far beyond what anybody else has done to date. So John, who wrote this gospel, he really wants every one of us to walk away, I think, with two big things about Jesus. Number one is that Jesus did the things that only God could do. Why? Because Jesus is God incarnate. Number two, Jesus himself 100% believes that he is God incarnate. Like Jesus is not confused about who he is. All the writers of the New Testament are intent on making sure you and I know this, and here's why. Without the deity of Jesus, the death of Jesus is completely meaningless. This is a rough estimate. I'm not a mathematician, but ish, 108 billion people have ever lived and died on planet Earth throughout history, not including all the babies that have been aborted. Not a single one of them had the power to save or forgive the sins of another. Why? Because they are sinful, fallen human beings. But there is something so fundamentally, essentially different about Jesus of Nazareth that somehow his shed blood can cover the sins of anybody who would trust in him. What is essentially different about Jesus of Nazareth from 108 billion other humans who have lived and died? He is God incarnate. And his blood is pure and powerful to cleanse any unrighteousness, any sin of any person, no matter how evil they are, if they would trust in him. So I want to come back to this question at the beginning, which best describes what you believe about Jesus? Non-existent, con man, self-deluded, good but misunderstood, a messenger from God, or God incarnate? Um, at the end of our sermons at Village Church, we typically end with what we call so what's. It's usually two or three big takeaways. I just have one for you this morning, this morning, this afternoon. Proclaim Jesus as your God. We said earlier, Good Friday is a communion service. The Apostle Paul says that communion is about proclaiming. Here's what he says. As often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. 
So this, this afternoon, every one of us who partake of communion, we are making a personal proclamation. Not that Jesus was simply a prophet. Not that he was a good teacher. When you partake of communion, you are making a declaration that you believe Jesus is not just God, but your personal God. And that because he was God, when he died on the cross for your sins, that his shed blood alone has the power to forgive anybody who would come to God through faith in Christ. So when we partake of these elements, it can be a little bit rote, but this is for people who are proclaiming and professing that Jesus is your God. So we come together every Good Friday and we do this to remember uniquely the shed blood of Jesus, God in the flesh for our sins. I have incredible news for every single person in this room. If you have trusted in Jesus, the blood of Christ is more powerful than your darkest, worst moment, the most evil thing you have ever done or imagined doing. The blood of Christ, the blood of God shed for your sins has the power to forgive and to save. So when we partake of these elements, my prayer for you is that it is a weekly reminder as we do this most weeks. It's a weekly reminder that your sins are forgiven. You have been purified, not by your own good works, not by going to church, not by being better than your neighbors. You've been purified by the blood of God, Jesus Christ alone. So if you're here and you have never personally made the decision to trust in Jesus as your God for the forgiveness of your sins, I think Good Friday today is the greatest day to do it. Maybe as you saw that list, maybe you were like, you know what? I believe Jesus is God incarnate but I have never actually personally asked him to be my God and to save me from my sins. And I, again, wonderful news. Forgiveness of sins has never in the Bible been about the accrual of good works or being a good person. Never. You'll never be good enough. But it's for those who are forgiven through faith in Jesus. And so if you've never trusted in Christ, I want to encourage you, tell Jesus that you're sorry for, for your sin. And ask him to save you. Tell him you believe in his death and resurrection for your sins. And if today that's a decision you want to make for the first time, we'd love to celebrate with you. Tell somebody you came with. We'd love to help you take a next step as you walk with Jesus. But let me, let me give you a very, very first next step if today you are ready to personally trust in Jesus. I want to invite you to partake of communion with us. I'm not having you raise your hand. I'm not having you come to the altar. If you want to do that, have at it. What I'm asking you to do is to do what Christians have been doing for the past 2,000 years. I'm asking you to take these symbols and as you partake of them, let this partaking be your personal proclamation that Jesus is your God. He is your savior. Apologize to him for your sin and his promise to you is that your sins will be forgiven and that you will be given the Holy Spirit and that you will be given the confident assurance that heaven is yours, forgiveness is yours and you are adopted into the family of God. I cannot think of a better Good Friday gift to give you than adoption to the family of God through faith in Christ. So here's how we do communion. Um, we're gonna have a time of silence in just a moment. It's an opportunity for you to reflect on your sin, your week. It's an opportunity for you to thank God for what he's done for you because of the blood of Christ. We're gonna have a time of silence and then what we're gonna do is I'll pray and then we're gonna sing a song together and the song is going to reflect on the blood of Christ and the death of Jesus in our behalf.
While the song is going on, there are elements. If you didn't get them on the way in, they're at the column to my left, also the column to my right, and there's some between the double doors in the back. At any time during our time of silence or during the song, if you want to stand up and grab those, if you would hold on to the elements until the end of the song, we're going to partake together. And this partaking together, it's a symbol of our unity, our oneness that is found in belief in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So let's have a time of silence as we reflect on the crucifixion together.